Hello everybody and welcome back to the Steadcast. Today we're going to take you all the way back to our very first... Whoa, 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 whoa. Who the hell is talking right now? We're going to take you all the way back to our first episode where we feel the need to properly introduce ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea who this man sat opposite me is. Uh, Please tell me, what is your name? My name is Sam Wade. I enjoy running on the weekends and I'm currently training towards the marathon. What's your name, co-host? My name is Kieran Clements. I am the founder and head coach of Steadfast Runners, and I do a little bit of running myself. I'm training for, wow, geez, what am I even training for at the moment? I suppose the big half is my next big goal race, so half marathon training at the moment. Now, if you're a regular listener, you might think that's a slightly curious way to start this podcast. However... I don't know what you're talking about, strange mystery man. (laughs) However, the reason that we have started the podcast like that is because we've received a very firm comment on... I think firm is a fair way of putting it. Yeah, it was very firm, wasn't it, on Apple. Um, And basically, this person said, what did they say? I'm going to find the comment that they left us specifically. I can't even find it on here now. Swipe across. Swipe across. There you go. Oh, here we go. Right. So this is our first comment with the title, What Are Your Names? You really need to introduce yourselves at the beginning of each podcast as no idea who you are. Enjoy your podcasts, but it'd be good to know your names. So, person who left the comment on the 6th of January... In What's fa- your name? In fact, no, it's a, they had a strange username. Yeah, I was going to say it's AP one nine nine four nine seven. So I would read that as I don't even know how I'd read that because that's a digit longer than a birthday. I think no. I think what that is is there are just so many people that are on Apple right now. I've had a couple of people say this. Oh yeah, is true. whenever it's they want to leave a comment it, yeah. somewhere, they have to make up some ridiculous like. <laughs> name that it's like if i did it i'd be like oh kieran clements 100 one two three four nine seventy six <laughs> colon colon ab 76 like some just ridiculous names okay so fair play to them here we are these are our names we don't want to lose a listener and be too <laughs> we can take criticism guys constructive criticism is very welcome but there is literally a thumbnail that has our names on apple Podcasts. we just thought that was a slightly <laughs> but, a slightly amusing one to open up with yeah just because no, it, we do appreciate all so. comments and all constructive criticism so thank yeah. you what was it ap1 ap1 thank you for leaving a comment and for rating us i think four stars out of five four which stars is our only non-five star <laughs> review as well, we'll take rude. it. We're we'll gonna take someone's it. just gonna log on now. And make one star. <laughs> Screw one. these guys. They care about ratings. <laughs> one star. Anyway, we mustn't get too caught up in taking the Mickey out of one listener for not knowing our names. We do have a couple of other comments that I just want to read out to. This one is from PJS two seven eight. Maybe we should abandon the names. Maybe we should abandon. Not the our name. own. Sorry, no. Mr. <laughs> Mr. First commenter. Just the the names of the commenters because they're. If I'm right in thinking, the other one that we got doesn't make a lot of sense either. A really enjoyable, insightful episode. Thank you very much. Well, that's very polite of you. So thank thank you you. for listening. Uh, And then finally, I recognize this name. I'm not going to try and read it out because I think it sounds slightly inappropriate. However, I think that this is a, uh, I think this is David who wrote this. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's a familiar. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
And he says, well worth a listen, insightful and funny. Looking forward to the shoe rant one day. Well, fabulous. If that is you, David, we will bring it and you'll be able to listen to us ramble inside and outside of the podcast. And if you're not David and you left that comment and you don't have any idea what the hell we're on about, please let us know your name. I'll, I'll address you personally next time. There we go. We're big on names here today. There but we yeah, go. we'll have a mini shoe rant coming up in a minute, but we've got quite a lengthy interview with Mark Hookway today, which we're really excited to share with you guys. We've just got off the phone with him there. Uh, but there has been a recent development in the shoes, which we will get into, and I'll try and keep my rant under two or three minutes. We're going to try and keep the kettle under 100 degrees. I think what Kieran's going to look like, <laughs> you know in cartoons when the steam comes out of their ears and they go red in the face? Oh, yeah. I feel like Kieran's probably... It's already building. I feel like, yeah, he's probably at like 90 degrees right now, and that last 10 is just he's waiting to simmer <laughs> before it really goes over the top. Um, anyway, like Kieran said, we've got an absolutely brilliant insight with somebody who's got a lot of experience in coaching and throughout various events that Kieran's known for a long time and we will be jumping in with that very soon. But we do want to jump into a few other things and the first thing I want to talk about is someone who we've actually talked briefly about on the podcast before but a very significant achievement that came on Saturday and that is my friend Sam French. Now cast your minds back to I think it must have been towards the end of November the November yeah, the 20th. Back end of last year, yeah. Something like that. And he essentially messaged me out of the blue and said that, you know, he wanted to do something and get out. And, and I took him on his first run and we did about a mile and a half down at Felixstowe and it was wet and windy. But his sense of achievement for doing that mile and a half was evident. You know, he re- you could tell that he really felt enlightened by it. And since then, we'd gone out on a few other runs. We'd done a couple of little two milers. We did one where I was trying to do two and a half miles. We ended up doing about 2.8. And I said to him very firmly after that, look, you've definitely got the strength to do a 5K, but let's make sure that we do it the right way. So I'm very, very happy to say that on the Saturday just gone, he completed his first 5K park run. Boom, which would be, I think, the 12th of January was, yes. was the date. So yeah, first yeah. park run, what was it, 26 minutes or so? 26, 26.30, which I think for someone... Boom. I think that's a hell of a strong time. Yeah, for somebody who literally couldn't, like, I don't think you'll mind me saying this, literally couldn't run up until a few months ago to then complete a park run in a pretty... I think a very, respectable I, I time. Think really yeah. respectable time. Yeah, and um, you know, and and to him as well. You know, the whole thing for him is, it, you know, he ran five k without stopping. Yeah, you know, he had plenty of gas left in the tank. Basically, you know the bit. This is the the Kesgrove Park run that obviously you and I talk about on here. Yeah, so I'm sure, much. I'm sure our listeners will feel like they've run it themselves. Half probably have. <laughs> exactly, but I, I the the fun part of it was we sort of went out and I forgot to tell him this. And French, if you're listening to this, that first mile we ran was actually your fastest mile that you've run yet. Again, so you chipped away at that by another few seconds. Congratulations on um, his longest run ever as well. Exactly. Yeah, and um, it was really fun because the whole day, obviously, park runs a good day. We know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bit at the end where it sort of spits you out of the woods and you can kind of see the finishing tape, I basically said to him, look, I said, the moment you pop out of the woods and you pop up there's that little hill, I said, anything you've got left in the tank, you pile it into that last, you know, 400 metres or a couple of hundred metres oh, or whatever it is. If that, yeah. it's maybe 100. Whatever it is, I just, you know, whatever you got left, I just said, as soon as you see it, that's when you're mentally there and you can just go for it. And he went for it and finished strong. And you could tell, again, he was delighted. So... Good man. Well done, French. A, b- a big achievement. Yeah, very happy for you, mate. Well done, and I'll see you at the next one. <laughs> there we go. He's he's caught the bug. And speaking of catching the running bug, you are in your first official proper race this weekend, the Snetterton 10K. How are you feeling? Do you know what? It's really interesting. I was trying to think about the last time that I took part in an organized kind of event where I had a number, and it must have been, it must have been the Paris half, which is 
you know, getting on for four years, it's like, oh yeah, he's over th- yeah. Like and that three, would be, three quarter years ago. And I right, think that would be the only one that you've ever done as well. And that was just kind of on a whim. Uh, certainly road race wise, obviously a couple of like the obstacle course races and things are a bit uh, different. Yeah, and park runs and things um, too, yeah. But no, in terms of something that's, yeah, an organized like actual event tag and all that kind of thing. Yeah, with a couple of thousand other people on the start line. Yeah, I don't know how big this Nesterton race is, but no. you know, there'll Hope- be... Hopefully a few hundred be, people there. Yeah, hopefully oh, I was going to say hopefully it should be me there and I'll just run around. <laughs> and I'll finish first. Um, yeah. But but no, um, do you know what? I'm, re- I'm I've got that weird nervous nervousness about it because there's the part of me that goes, I'll get really carried away and I'll fly off. But then <laughs> there's the other part of me that goes, no, you you've learned a little bit more about running than that recently. And yeah, like, exactly. And well, I think you're probably still having those thoughts because we're yet to discuss an actual race plan uh going into it which we will probably do over the next couple of days or so yeah exactly but generally i'm feeling quite relaxed i mean i know that kind of the key goal that we've agreed on above any anything else is breaking 40 which i'm pretty comfortable and confident that i'm going to be able to pull that out the bag i I think you'd have had a bit bit of a disaster if you were to not break 40 in this run yeah no you're in much better shape than that exactly and the way that we're viewing this people listening is that this is a stepping stone on the way to running the London Marathon in April. This isn't the be-all and end-all. I mean, we've done... I think you've done literally one 10K-specific session of you did 5 by 2 k the other week. Yeah. And, I mean, that was so recently that it won't have even really absorbed and make any difference by the time Sunday rolls around. But you're in good shape. You're ready to roll. Uh, so it'll be good to get a nice little marker down. Yeah, and generally, do you know what? I think it's going to be good for a, for a number of reasons. I think just giving myself a gauge on what I'm capable of because... I know full well that I can go out and run a park run in 19 minutes, say, for example. Mm. Um, but doubling that distance doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to double that time. You know, it's going to be double it, double and That'd a bit. That'd be lovely but, if it works. Like <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I mean is it's going to give me, you know, so, so far in my running projects, as it were, you know, I know what my like casual little fun run that I can go out and do by myself. I know what I'm capable of doing in that. And I've seen my mm. improvement. Then obviously we did a project where I ran a mile and yeah, we could see my improvement in that. And then, then we I've did done, the 5K as I've well. done park run and now I know I'm capable in that. So it, it makes sense that it's kind of, it's just the next step up in terms of a distance. Exactly. Um, and the other thing as well, it'd be fun, like for the marathon, obviously there's lots of fundraising, things like that going on. And one of the ideas that the guys at the charity gave me, they said you could set out like a sweepstake for your mate. So yeah, everyone chips in a couple of quid and guesses your time. And I thought that'd be good because obviously then that I way... Like, you can... I like that actually. I, I've thrown down my gauntlet of what I think you can run. So exactly, it'd be cool yeah. to get some of the other guys involved or even some of these listeners. If you're interested, chuck Sam a message. Exactly, yeah. So it, but it'd be quite good because... I'll then be able to write down, you know, oh, this is my time for 5K, this is my time for 10K. And, and Give that them way, a bit of data to make like an, an educated guess. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's quite fun personally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, some of our mates, that might not make the tiniest bit of difference. But no. <laughs> yeah, to, if, if some of the listeners got involved or some of the people that we know through Parkrun or just the local running scene got involved, then yeah, no, it would help them to make quite a good educated yeah. guess. I don't know if it's cheating if I get in the sweepstake. Because yeah. I will have obviously seen all of your training and been the one that's guiding you, but yeah, but I think certainly if we it's, talk, it's, if we talk charity, bri- isn't it? Yeah, and if we talk briefly about the marathon, I mean, and you'll know of all people that on race day on the day there, especially over a distance like the marathon, is there could be a million things like I could be, could I could be in the shape of my life, and then it could be absolutely hammering with rain on the day. And yeah. oh, well, or you could be in the shape of your life, having the race of your life, get to twenty five 
0.5 miles and just bonk and it take you 20 minutes to cover the last half a mile exactly not to scare you from the marathon or yeah. anything but i mean it, it is just it's a it's a crazy race distance and it, that it, sort exactly. of thing can happen so but yeah but to to summarize and then move on from from where we are now yeah the the 10k it's i i dare say by the time i get going there'll be that just that nervous energy and i think as with all those things i think just once i get over the line and once i've run the first you know first 800 meters just to kind of settle the nerves a little bit and 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 i think it's probably fair to say by the time you've gone 800 meters out or 400 meters out something like that you know roughly where you're going to be in the race you can probably you can probably kind of glue on to a couple of people mentally and you go yeah that person looks like they're running at the sort of thing that i think i can match and you sort of yeah your, your mental mind game kind of settles a little bit so for me that's what I'm expecting. Could be totally different, but that's that's kind of what I'm expecting. And I'm hoping it'll be a good day out. Like running on a racetrack is actually quite a cool thing. Like part of the whole reason. On a motor racing track, yeah. No, yeah. So, part- so for people that don't know the Snetterton 10K, it's up in Norfolk somewhere, is it? It's Norwich North, type Norfolk, of area. Norfolk, Suffolk border area, really. Yeah. Like um, so it's a racetrack up near there. They're hosting a 10K. I think they have a 5K and a half marathon as well. They might even have yeah. a full marathon. I think uh, it's- but it's a, it's a quick course. It's nice and flat because obviously racetrack. Yeah and yeah no, it i think be it's fun to see what you can do i looked it up i think it's basically two laps around the whole thing yeah um which is quite good and yeah, just think just of it as like your own experience. personal monza yeah that's it that's <laughs> kind of what i am doing yeah um, you're, you're kip Choge in 2016 uh, 17 17 Oof, Done you. Known that. um but Ouch. the other thing as well is that i something that gives me a bit of strength is knowing that it's only a two lap thing i think mentally for me mm. if it's one of those ones you've got to go like four laps you're like losing count going oh god how much longer have i got to go <laughs> whereas it but whereas the thing is it's quite nice is then you you know roughly it's 5k per lap you can yeah go, you'll get like a nice halfway point you can go around one and you can go right am i about 20 minutes ish yeah i am yeah it should be about right you know like that so <laughs> yeah exactly well you'll, nice you'll have your watch as well sam's bought himself a nice shiny new garmin so he can have all of his splits and everything <laughs> so actually, he's very excited about it i actually understand what the hell i'm doing yeah exactly once. but anyway so that's the 10k and on the subject of the 10k Oh, we've got some big news. Out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, we've got some big 10K news. So the Valencia 10K was this past weekend. And, oh, wow. Like, it was just rapid. So some of the smaller headlines we'll start with before we get to the big name. So we had some very good British performances in Callum Hawkins and Ben Connor. Callum ran 28.02 for a Scottish record, taking that, I think, from Alastair Hutton in the 80s or 90s. Ben Connor ran 28.10, which a significant improvement upon the 28.39, I think it was, that he ran in Julia's, uh, the race that I did in France, uh, where I ran, I think it was 28.52 that I was there. So great performances on the British side from those guys. We also saw four women go under 30 minutes for the 10K, one of them just narrowly missing out on the world record, the winner running 29.44 I think the world record being 43. Um, Don't quote me on that. I'm not 100%. But, I mean, four women sub 30. I'm pretty sure we've never seen that before in a race. We had a European record from Julian Wanders. I have some thoughts on him personally, but we'll keep those to ourselves. But he ran the European record of 27.13. An absolutely phenomenal performance. And then we also had a world record. Uh, And out of nowhere, I mean... 
I, I, th- I think not quite as out of nowhere as you think, but let's hear your thoughts on this and then I'll I'll rebuke. <laughs> my, my main thoughts are that the race organizers in Valencia are rubbing their hands together, <laughs> going, this is the way that we build a profile for our city and for our scene and everything. And well, yeah, everywhere. It was PB factory. Exactly. And considering that, I think the thing that's most interesting about this world record in particular is the fact that it was it because I think it was like the first of December when Chep guy and we were talking about it on this pod. Yeah, Chep guy absolutely tore it apart. Didn't yeah, he? he was twenty nine, uh, twenty six, forty something, something like I think. that. Yeah, and we, and we should state because we haven't actually said it yet. The world record went to Ronix Kiprutu of Kenya, and he ran twenty six twenty four. I mean, that's only I think it's six or seven seconds slower than Bekele's world ten thousand yeah. meter record on the track. Exactly. And to kind of to to state where I think this puts us is the fact that it was kind of it was in the eyes of the running community because it was the last kind of significant twenty nineteen obviously lots of enormous things happened in twenty nineteen in the world mm. of running. But Chep de Guy was one of the last ones it, as in just it was, chronologically it, it, came in near the end of the year. Yeah, it was almost like the bookend for that year. Mm. So you think you've got the bookend for that year and then obviously now we're in the Olympic year, there's gonna be a lot of stuff that's gonna happen yes. between now and the summer, certainly. And then for this to start so early and the literally, literally the, in January. The, the freshest record from, let's be honest, an absolutely unbelievable athlete as Chapter Guy is, who I think a lot mm. of people, if you'd have said, who are you going to pick in the Olympics 10,000? Well, I'd say Chapter Guy is probably still the heavy favorite along with Kiprutu, and I, you probably have to chuck Mo in the mix as well. It, exactly. But you think about the discussion that that now causes around mm. that race is pretty astonishing because what that does is that essentially builds this competitive platform where you go, actually, Chep Guy looked pretty smooth in his race. He didn't cross the line looking like he was out of breath or anything like that. He he looked like he had some gas in the tank. So yeah. you wonder almost, is he going to make an assault on that world record well, I mean, it gets, build up you, to that. I was going to say, if it gets much faster, then we're going to be look. We're going to be in a situation where the roads 10k record is quicker than the track. And yeah. anyone who's run on the roads versus the track, most people will agree that the track is faster than yeah. the roads. And there's a few reasons why the roads are getting a lot quicker at the moment. And perhaps Kipruto is. We don't know because he hasn't ever really tried to go from the gun to run a fast 10,000 on the track. I mean, he may yeah. be in world record track shape for the yeah. 10k. Yeah, but we don't know. But like I say, it, it what it does more than anything else is it creates an absolutely fabulous platform for a 10,000 meter race. And, and the other thing as well is maybe think about the eyes of the public. Think about where people see it. Certainly in Britain, at least, the last couple of Olympic Games, we've all really been able to take interest in the 10,000 meters because we exactly. had a real medal hopeful. Mm. Now, Mo Farah has announced he's coming back and that will certainly keep audiences maybe glued to it because you've got somebody who's you know, trying it to... Should, def- it definitely should do it. And I think the 10,000 will be all he runs at the Olympic Games as yeah. well. I don't think he has any interest in the 5,000 or the marathon. No. So not only is the 10,000 looking like it's going to be one of the best races of the Olympics from the neutral standpoint, it's also got a great deal of British interest now. Exactly. So so what you do, and, and the way that you've got to think about it is everyone watches the 10, uh, 10 or 100 metres because it's only 10 seconds. You know, it's, it's attention span thing is short. You've got to have something pretty sensational lined up to keep people interested for best part of half an hour. Yeah. Call it yeah. 20, 25, 26, 27 And you know minutes. what I think these two will do, but nobody did to Farrell when he was in the prime of his career. Is I think they'll, him out. they'll take lumps out of him yeah. from all the way from the start. Well, I mean, Kip Ruti is a dedicated front runner. 
Chapter guy loves pushing the pace. Like, I think it's going to be a proper, proper scrap. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that. And if you think about the way that certainly Farah's run a lot of his races where he's been very successful is he likes to go in the back. He yeah. likes to hold on to the group. Now, he, he has like- run fast. We can't take that away from him. He's run, I think he may actually hold the Olympic record for the 10,000. I might be yeah. wrong there, but I remember there was there was a 10,000 world, world level championship that he won in 27 minutes or maybe even just under. Yeah, but but yeah, you know, like you say, is he, he typically has had a lot of success, certainly in the last couple of Olympics, by running those very tactical kind of, mm-hmm. everyone goes, he's at the back, but it's okay, he's only five minutes <laughs> yeah, in. Yeah, and then a mile to go, he gets himself to the front and he just controls uh, it and just winds and winds and winds and winds and winds. But the thing is, and I think... And I think when he's maybe tried to do that in certainly like the marathon and in some of the other races that he's been doing more recently, obviously marathon's very different, longer distance, mm. whatever you want. But he's been at the back and he's not been able to, because then when the people at the front go, he's had that decision to make. Whereas do I run my own race or do I go with them and risk yeah. it? And I think he'll be forced into that same sort of situation where if those guys go out and drop the hammer and drag the pack with him, if they're running world record pace from very early on, it, yeah, exactly. That's going to ask. What's he going to do? That's going to ask a hell of a lot of him because then he's got to say, well, if I'm going to be in contention at all, I've got to be up the front. I've got to be pushing the pace, and then, you know, he's four years older. Is he going to still have that same kick that worked so lethally for him? Yeah. Or well, I mean, it could come to a no, point where just does he have the fitness to go with this race? I mean, it may. And I would love to see this because of a lack of high profile 10,000 meter races on the world circuit anymore, especially with the Diamond League dropping all distances above the 3,000. It may take a world record to win the Olympics this year. I'd be surprised if it didn't take the Olympic records to yeah. win it. So he's going to probably have to run faster than he's ever run before. He's going to have coming, to coming out of his prime if he's going to want to win the olympics possibly even to medal i yeah. mean it's yeah you've got two guys here that are looking like they could challenge that world record which if you'd asked me two years ago who if anyone kind of in the near future was going to be able to break any of bekele's records i'd have said no like it's going to take decades for those things to go down but Farrah's going to have here eye- they are he's going to have eyeballs like dinner plates as he comes across that last <laughs> that last hundred oh, well, that's, that, that's a given he always does <laughs> <laughs> always oh, focused but Getting back to this record in Valencia. Here we go. Here we go. Can you sense what's coming, everyone? Shall it's I drop? Not, no, it's not no, going to be that one yet. No, that. There's, a, there's a different one which I'm going to which Ooh, I'm going to explore. Careful. Is that it, it's, it's a controversial one as well, and it kind of casts a shadow of doubt slightly over the record. That's annoying. We just had the doorbell go. Pizza, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. Uh, it kind of casts a shadow of a doubt over it because of. A lot of Kenyan athletes have been getting banned recently. Most oh, recently, yeah, yeah. A Wilson legend, Kipsang, a legend to the sport in his own right. I think it's fair to say. Well, not anymore. But well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Wilson Kipsang the other day was in the news because he, I think it was, he had missed a drugs test. I think he's and, and he's he had allegedly, yeah, his whereabouts due to his whereabouts, he had missed a drugs test and he had allegedly tampered with a test. Yeah, and that makes him. One of, I think it's 60 plus Kenyan athletes in the last four years, Kenyan endurance athletes, that is, in the last four years that have either tested positive or have served doping violations. So that could be missed tests, that could be tampering with tests, that could be testing positive for PEDs. That's so much more, astronomically more than any other nation. And so 
having a Kenyan athlete run the world record over the 10K, and like you said, seemingly out of nowhere, which I'll address in a second because it wasn't quite out of nowhere. But Eyebrows do get raised, I see what you're saying. Exactly. There's, I've seen a lot of skepticism, and I can't help myself, as much as, it hates, as much as I hate to say it, I can't help but feel a little bit skeptical about it myself yeah, as well. I, I know what you mean. It's that kind of... And I, I think because of everything we've already discussed about it being quite fresh, you sort of almost, you almost want to hold back and you almost want to look for a reason, don't you? You want to you you almost would, hold yeah, back and exactly. Go, and that's what I loved about Cheptegei. Yeah. I mean, Cheptegei is so raw and so talented that you, you, it, you, yeah. you do kind of believe it, especially with the aid of those will, that will not be mentioned just yet, helping, helping kind of, you know, give him that, that energy return and be able to maintain that pace any, a little bit easier for a little bit longer. But back to Kiprutu, we said out of nowhere that's I don't think justified at all. I mean, he's run sub 27 or 27 very low on the, I think, it, what is it? The Healthy Kidney 10K course in New York, which, you know, you've been to New York. Like, yeah. it's not easy running around there. It's hilly. It's no, certainly yeah. not easy to run Sur- a world record, to run a world-class hilly. time like yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. And he's run other fast times. He's broken 27 minutes on the roads before, so... Kip Ruta, and I think he was third in the recent world championships at the 10,000 meters. Right, okay. um, guy obviously winning that. And I think it was Yomif Kajelcha finished second that day. Uh, so it's not quite out of nowhere. Like it's always been there and he's relatively young if his age records are to be believed, which Kenya have a history of not keeping great records with date of birth and things like that. But if that's to be believed, then he is similar to guy, just a real raw talent. He's done it before. And you, I mean, you never know. No, yeah. uh, which whichever way you cut it, I think having another injection of somebody performing strongly whilst they're relatively young at the ten k, you know, in in an Olympic year as well, it, yeah, it tees up for a very exciting Olympics and tees up for maybe you know some future marathon runs in in the years to come as exactly. well. Exactly, and like I think you hit the nail on the head there with it tees up for a really exciting Olympics, and that is the essence of the sport of it in the end. Like regardless of things like shoes and peds and stuff like that like it's going to be a really entertaining race and sport is entertainment it's an entertainment industry and it's going to be entertaining so if you sweep all of the ethics and things like that aside yeah it's going to be really entertaining and who knows we may just be we may have just come across two of the most talented runners of all time like just happen to be about at the same time you never know it's a ugandan versus a kenyan versus a a Brit in the yeah. Olympics. I mean, that's going to be that's going to be cool. I'm looking forward to that. Definitely. But now, the bit that we've been waiting for, drum roll. <laughs> I don't know if that was going to get picked up, but I we, think we will, do yeah. have we have a minor <laughs> drum roll going on. Kibruto ran that time wearing Adidas Takumis oh! on his feet. It wasn't in the Nike shoe, which I mean, you things of things you love to see. That pretty much tops the list in my books. Ladies, I mean, ladies and gentlemen, salvation for Adidas sponsored athletes, <laughs> Kieran Clements, <laughs> everywhere. No, seriously. I mean, that was yeah. You love to see it. It. it well, do I, d- I don't know what else I can really say about that. I mean, that was it. That was really cool. And what that has also provided us with is a great segue into our final news item of the last week or so, 10 days, however long ago it was since our last podcast. Yeah. Literally broke this morning. The IWF are finally going to do something about these expletive shoes. Here we go. Right. So I think that it's worth maybe mentioning them a little bit and we can have a proper shoe rant one day soon is that if you don't know then it won't take you long to find out that these 
shoes that specifically come from Nike have got a rather large stack of foam in them, which is very, very bouncy. And they also have the addition of a carbon fiber plate, which is said to give people extra kind of energy return, propulsion, momentum forward, whichever energy, you want to yeah, phrase basically it. energy return. And the, the reason that they're so heavily stacked with this foam is so that they can then bend that carbon fiber plate and then go to manipulate your, exactly, yeah. essentially, yeah. We're, let's just, let's not say much more on it now because... A, we want to get into Mark's interview, the real meat and potatoes of this podcast, because yeah. he's had he's got some great stuff that that he's said to us, and I'm really looking forward to the listeners getting to hear that. So we won't hold you up too much longer with me ranting about shoes. Um, and also, it's in the very early stages. There's not re- there's no real clarity on the parameters that are going to be set, whether the next percent are still going to be allowed or not, uh, whether it's just to prevent things from getting even more out of hand than they already are. We don't know exactly what the issue is going to be. We just know that there is going to be some type of action taken. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be limiting the stack height that is allowed within shoes. But whether whether that is going to be 40 millimeters or whether it's going to be yeah. more or less, to, to, we never know. To summarize where we are at the moment, it feels to me like it will be a case of the technology of keeping foam and carbon together. It will stay because that's what's going to keep... Yeah, but there's going to be a it, like it's that. going to be a limit to how much you can truly yeah, do that because I mean be... if you look at the Alpha Fly, we're getting into it a little bit too much now. Yeah. But that had three carbon plates in, for example, exactly. all of them manipulated into a perfect shape to allow Kipchoge to get maximum energy return. Yeah, so I think it will be it will be some form of regulation around the shoes. But like we say, salvation for everybody who doesn't like them, doesn't believe in them, <laughs> Kieran. And commiserations to those who have run yeah. a ton of PBs, which <laughs> now might be, uh, might be rewritten. You might... Yeah. But no, like I say, I think it's it's very important just to mention that because it has come off a sensational weekend of sport and in, and it segued into something that could affect a lot of things again as we build up towards the olympics exactly so yeah guys if you want if you want to run some pvs buy your next percents and get yourself in a race asap <laughs> <laughs> i'll get some for sunday yeah exactly <laughs> anyway let's move on so we won't need to say too much more about um our guest i'll let kieran introduce him and then we're ready to rock and roll so everybody please enjoy this interview with mark quick So our guest today on today's show is one of the UK's leading distance running coaches, Mark Hookway. Mark is the coach at Tombridge AC, where to name just a few of his accolades with the club, he has led the team to victory at the National Cross Country Championships and six-stage relays, as well as playing a big role in the careers of 335-1500 meter man James West and 1345,000 meter man Chris Ollie. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hello, and thank you for having me on. No worries, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, so we'll dive kind of straight into things by making like Craig David and rewinding to ask you, I thought I'd try that one out and Sam clearly loved it, to ask you how you first got into athletics. Well, at school, basically, um, went to a school that's done a lot of um, sport over the years, a local school called Judd School, where a lot of our runners at Tunbridge still um, still come from, actually. And um, I've always had a, a, a good tradition. And uh, as soon as I went there, you know, got involved in rugby and, and, and running. And there was a guy called Brian Mitchell who was um, in charge of the cross country and athletics. And he sort of encouraged it. And as a lot of schools back then did, there was a few internationals dotted around Kent coaching at various schools and uh, seemed to um, 
it seemed back in that, those days, every school did cross country and athletics. Since obviously changed a lot since then, but uh, that was that was my background. And, he, and at one stage, almost gave up. Um, only in the, you know, year eight, two years in, and uh, kicked about a football after school, and then um, I got selected for a cross country race. Came in as a reserve and finished third in the race, and that was sort of oh, wow. my love of it. Uh, fired really Um, sort of a catalyst almost by the sound of things it kind of picked you up from where you were and you maybe realized at that point oh oh no I could be quite good at this yes yeah I mean I was never I'm never your standard um I managed to run for county schools in the county got a couple of county representations at senior level um uh, cross country um maybe steeplechase back in the day but um yeah, um, that was that was the level I got to, and um, I, can, I was joined Tunbridge, I think, 19, January nineteen seventy-five. So that's a that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I was going to ask you in the intro here is, um, well, I obviously, and I think a lot of people will have this in common with me, as I know you as Mark Hookway, the coach. But it would be good to have a quick dive into Mark Hookway, the athlete, because that's obviously where the passion for for running and for athletics comes from. Uh, I did notice there's one result on the power of 10 for you, and that was in the year the year 2000. You finished fourth in the Kent V40 Championships with a yeah. 428-1500. Yes. But I assume yeah, that I... there's a good deal more to it than that. So just, yeah, take us briefly through your competitive career in athletics. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit embarrassing compared to your previous guest, James T. Um but uh, I did actually get through to veterans level. So what's that from age 11 to I think 43? I, oh, wow. I did something or other. That's um, a, and that's a long old career there. It is. Um, <laughs> You've earned the right to be telling people what to do now. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to be top international to be able to coach. I think you just have to no, be a sort not. of people person and interested in others. And uh, obviously talk to a lot of people and read bits and pieces, etc. But um no, I, I went through the traditional sort of cross country, mixed it with rugby, and then before I got to the sixth form, I thought I really like this running much more than the rugby. And the rugby was getting tougher, even though I was in the the, the first fifteen at the time, and um, decided to concentrate on track. I think around one fifty six for eight hundred at school, that sort of level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bear in mind there were grass tracks and cinder tracks back then, mostly, um, and, that, and that was it. And I, I think then. I went to university and like a lot of people do and still do at university, uh, found a social life there. It waned a bit by the year two, got going. There was some really you know, good runners at Southampton University at the time. A guy called Neil, Neil Appleby he ran for Birchfield Harriers, was probably our top runner. He won the Bucks um, 10,000 metres title at the time. And there was, you know, we used to go out for the long runs and do quite a bit of, bit of mileage in the winter. But then I seemed to lose my way. When it came around to the summer, I was a bit lazy. Exams came around, struggled through the exams. So I never really got it together mm-hmm. until I left university. And then we had a really good group at Tunbridge. Well, I say really good, a little group that were quite dedicated, used to train together. Not a lot of structure to the training, but we did everything from you know, 800 metres to half marathons. I never did a marathon, but um, I ran 155 for 20 miles once when we just rocked up for the county 20 mile championship and things like that but it was it was very unstructured did the club races there wasn't social media it was our social life we met up for runs we went up for races 
And I think that's a lot the way most people were at the time. You know, we, tur- we turn up as a bunch of seniors on a club night and say, well, what should we do tonight? And whoever had the best idea we went along with, really. And it was, um, it's, it's odd looking back. And I just wish I'd had a little bit more, put a little bit more thought to it at the time. Could have probably moved up a few notches. You know, we probably trained too hard on consecutive days, not enough recovery, not enough. Yeah, we, we go down the track and do, oh, let's do 12 times 200 metres with 200 jog. That seems like a nice one, but never do Ks or anything else on the track, which with a coach who knows what you're doing, you bring bring that sort of thing yeah, you to put some people, more don't you? Into it. Yeah, no, exactly. It sounds like it was very, very much kind of, it was raw. You guys were just doing it, yeah, for the love yeah. of it, basically, and just yeah. having some fun with it without a great deal of, like you say, structure and thought. But I think yeah. what that probably did for you is you could, you've probably been able to, as a coach, learn from your mistakes as an athlete. So let's talk about the kind of journey from athlete into coaching. What kind of yeah. brought you into that world and made you kind of gave you the inspiration to help other people on their athletic journeys. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you spotted that result on power 10. I didn't realize it was the only result, but um, shows the <laughs> age. I, I just about scrambled to the veterans age group over 40. Um, and there was a club record for the 1500. I think it was 426 or something. And I thought, well, I'm going to probably have a go at that. And I struggled <laughs> for a year or two to do that. And in the end, um, I was trying to mix doing probably 40 miles a week and some training and getting injuries. I'd had an Achilles problem since early 30s. Um, I was involved with a management buyout at work and that and, and work was full on through my 30s, really. Um, so very involved. Um, and so that running took a back seat. But with the injuries and the family and everything else, uh, yeah, I loved the running and I tried to keep it going desperately. But there came a stage where I had to think, you know, is it really worth it? And I can remember doing a Kent Cross Country League and finishing quite a way down the field and thought, what am I doing? And a colleague at the club who actually joined Tunbridge, I think the year before me in 1974, he'd started doing a little bit of coaching. Um, and because his son was just joined the club, he's 10 or 11 years old. And um, we must have been talking and he said, why don't you come and join me? And we started with like half a dozen sort of under 13s at mm-hmm. the time. We used to run with them. And um, for some reason, between us, we said, right, OK, what we're going to do, we're going to take this little team and we're going to do all the championships. We're going to do the county championships, the southern championships, cross country and the national and go with it and see what happens. And we had a couple of little trips with them. By about the second year, they, they finished second in the national. It was under 13. So we thought, wow, this is good. And um, bit by bit, others saw a little bit of success because Tunbridge had never really been associated with winning championships or you know, thriving in any way. We had a couple of little get- goes at it in our history, but um, never got any momentum and certainly never got any senior teams. Going, which is kind uh, of, that, I think, probably level. for a lot of people quite surprising to hear now, especially if they've not been involved in the sport for a great deal of time at club level, because Tunbridge is now known as one of the top clubs in the country quite consistently for the last, you know, five, six, maybe even longer years. Yeah, yeah and I think that's the nice thing, especially for the guys at university. You know, after a weekend, or if they go to a university, they somebody says, what club are you from? Back in the day, nobody would ever heard of Tunbridge, and now, yeah, you know, they can take some pride in that. I think that's one of the nicest things about what we've 
being able to achieve. But yeah, it is difficult to explain um, to people that have been who are part of the club today. We've got 900 members. It's thriving. We've got um, five distance running groups training at the club, mainly organised by age group. And it's come a long way. And when we started that um, about 2003, the two of us, there was, um, I think we had one finisher in the county cross country or something like that across the age groups. It was that bad. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was re- really, it's really difficult to get that across to people who just see what we've got today and how we go about it. And yeah, it's, but it's um, actually, it's really been built kind of from the ground up by, it sounds like just the two of you guys just really working hard and just really helping these kids with you, like, well, using your passion for the sport. Yeah, and we're and, there. Yeah, I think it's, I wish I could say there's one simple reason for it, and this is what you do, and this is what you will happen. It's not. It's it's week in, week out, being there every you know two or three times a week at the club, and then putting on other opportunities for people to train and get together, going on the um, the trips to championships and things like that. A lot of good communication going on. And gradually, one or two people join and other coaches have joined. So we've probably got, I don't know, 15, 20 people involved in helping and coaching at the club on the distance running side, which is... Wow, yeah, and they're the all distance running, that's, yeah, no, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And I think we've let, we've let that responsibility be, be spread. You know, if somebody comes in, you know, we've got two or three people looking after the under 13s and you've got another two or three looking after the under 15s and things like that. So, and, and there is coordinating dedicated to the causes of the rest of us. And so it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a real team effort. That's, that's what's made it. And, um, cause you couldn't do it on your own. I, I, I couldn't do it on my own. It'd be impossible. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's evolved and, I can recall we we grew that small group of five or six to 20 probably quite quickly. And then, you know, the group got to like 30 and then we had to bring a, be a bit more coordinated in what we were doing. And we split the group into two and then eventually it was split into three. And it gradually went like that rather than, um, yeah, it was, it was it certainly wasn't an overnight um, sort of success. It took years, but I can remember... We used to go to. We went to the national cross country championships every year since that, that 2004, and um, used to say to people, you know, it's all very well. It's nice winning under 13s, under 15s, but you never hear um, about Manchester United's under 15s, do you? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. that's actually a great analogy. There. <laughs> a question that I think I'd have, Mark, and I find it interesting that obviously you've worked with kind of various different age groups. In the last, I'd say certainly, you know, probably eight years since we've had some real success at the Olympic cycle with people like Mo Farah, and obviously now we've like um, our sprinters have come through quite a lot. We've we've had a bit of success um, with sprinting as well, and obviously people like Mo Farah, and there's maybe like events like the marathon have had these kind of world records, and there's been a little bit more kind of. I don't know, media accessibility around it with powers like YouTube and things like that, which are aimed at younger audiences. Do you find that kids come to you and they link those experiences? You know, do you get kids coming up to you say that they want to run like MoFAR or anything like that? That you know, did you find that people come to you that way? Sam, I can honestly say no. We, okay. Not <laughs> at all. Not at all. Um, at the 2012 Olympics, I can remember two guys in their thirties coming along straight afterwards, being inspired by it. Um, but not kids. I think kids come along because their mates are part of the club, or yeah. The, yeah, 
you know, they've heard they've been on this trip or they've been part of the, they've been doing this race and they get a bit of publicity in the local newspaper. I mean, the local newspaper has been really good. Um, every single week there's been an article in there about the club and somebody doing whatever. And then the website, we've got, you've got means of communicating. Uh, and I think that has more of an effect. And so it's friends of friends. Uh, and the local schools normally pick up if, if somebody shows any talent. Oh, why didn't you go to Tumbridge Athletic Club? They're doing quite well. Um, I think that's much more has an effect than any of the um, top stars. I mean, Kelly Holmes lives up the road, but um, yeah, that half the club probably yeah. don't know who Kelly Holmes is now. <laughs> All of the no, exactly. and everything. Yeah. No, that's it's, really that's, that's really fascinating. Yeah. That just cultivating yeah. an environment of it being enjoyable and. It's more just, yeah, like you say, about getting your face in the local paper or having bragging rights among your mates or going on a trip yeah. with your mates to go and run the national cross country. That's what inspires the kids rather than, yeah, I want to be like Mo Farah because you look at other sports and I think, Sam, you're right to make that inference because we just talked yeah. about football. A lot, of people, gonna say. a lot of people my age, like I used to watch Arsenal play and I'd think, yeah, I want to be Thierry Henry. I never, I never watched running and thought, yeah, I want to be who was big when I was younger, Ken and Issa Bukele. I never, I never thought that it's, I want to be, I just, I started running because I thought, yeah, I'm, I've got a bit of talent at this and, and yeah, it's fun. Let's see where we can go with it, which is strange because yeah, there's not many sports like that. No. And it's, I suppose we're delving into an area that I'm still haven't come to terms with, with our sport is you've got a desire to promote it, but there's this, such diversity. I mean, you've got the local park run, and our local park run might have 500, 600 people in. Wow. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't even know who some of the, the, the top athletes, you mentioned Chris Ollie and James and West Westy, in the introduction. Yeah. They wouldn't know. And even if, you know, even if they turned up at the local park run around 1350, you know, they, they, I'm not yeah, sure it wouldn't. would resonate. It's a strange, very, very strange situation because as you say if somebody playing football down the local park they'd certainly know you know who um messi is or ronaldo whoever it might be yeah, or, even, or even at a lower it, level it, like they could probably yeah. name their entire starting 11 bench and reserves for whichever team they supported but yeah you're right yeah. five six hundred people down the local park run they've got two athletes on the doorstep which are knocking on the door of the olympics and probably only well i mean we'd guess what roughly 10 percent of those people would know who those guys are which yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. It's something that I struggle to kind of not come to terms with is the wrong way, but struggle to, yeah, get my head around to really understand. Yeah. Well, uh, with, with that, it's without... very frustrating. Yeah, it's very it frustrating. Without, because without... I, do, I, I do feel for um, athletes who, especially well, elite and sub-elite, you know, they've got the social media presence. Now, Dean Rasher-Smith's on a, you know, a different stratosphere now to many, mm. but the, there is a level where it seems to me that to get get their name out there and promote themselves, they have to do a certain amount of self-publicity because people aren't doing it for them. And that can backfire on them because people turn their noses up at that if people are looking like they're being a bit cocky or promoting themselves. So exactly. And someone it, who's been really good at that in the past, I think is Guy Learmonth, has a really good social media presence but gets quite a lot of backlash from that social media presence if he doesn't deliver on the track. But yes. he's just doing what yeah. he has to, and he's doing what he has to do to get his name out there and to get himself sponsorships yeah. and... Hundred percent, sort of thing, and it just so happens that he's a very good, high-profile athlete. So when he says he's going to deliver and doesn't deliver, that gives people ammunition to then take a shot at him, which 
I don't think is really deserved at all. No, and if they really knew Guy, I mean, he's he's somebody who I didn't know until we put on an invitation meeting at the end of August last year called the Tunbridge Twilight Meet, which you were part of. Yes, and was. we invited these athletes. And Guy, alongside three or four others, came down to attempt the world uh, qualifying time for the 800 metres. And we also had the steeplechase on where uh, Phil Norman and Ian Thomas it, were attempting yeah. that. <laughs> And Guy came down with his brother um, from Scotland. He was prepared to do it under his own steam, own expenses, not get anything just for the opportunity. We, it wasn't like that. We supported him a reasonable amount because somebody like that running, coming down, running 145, 146, we'd never seen anything like that on a Tunbridge track. Mm. And then we had a crowd of 500 or whatever it was. Um, but it seems sad that our sport can create such an atmosphere with people who are pretty much world-class level and hardly anyone would have known him. I mean, more people probably knew him for coming to the after-party drinks afterwards and you know, having a karaoke with everybody. And he was just brilliant. He yeah. mucked in and he just so showed, showed the human side of it. Well, but I wonder if at that after-party you pointed to him just as somebody that you were sat next to, like, yeah, that guy ran 146 tonight for the 800 metres. They'd probably be like, what? Yeah. That guy yeah. out there who's singing whatever Sweet it was. Caroline, yeah. yeah, Sweet Caroline <laughs> yeah. or whatever his karaoke choice was. And it's, yeah, I think it's that human side of the sport that we sometimes we sometimes neglect to convey. And he's someone that is really good at that over social media, is, is kind of getting that human side across and it's yeah, like it's hard to do I know I'm not great for it myself which was kind of something that I hoped to, to be able to do via this podcast a little bit is chat about running but also show that I'm not all about running like I do have a bit of personality as well I have I think yes. Sam will attest to this I have at least two or three other interests in life right yeah true <laughs> true true <laughs> but no so you mentioned the Tombridge Twilight let's I, I had that down to talk about later but we might as well jump into that now because I thought that was an absolutely brilliant meet we had World qualifying time attempts at the 800 and the 3K steeplechase. I ran in the 3,000 meters. We had a sub four minute mile in Tombridge, which I, I, I mean, I don't know if you ever thought that would have happened in the, in the. Near I don't future, think there's but... ever been one in Kent. Actually, well, there we go. Oh, That's if, incredible. If, if Crystal Palace is outside of Kent, I don't think there's ever been one in Kent. Yeah. yeah. See, there you go. And the fact that I think James West was he three fifty eight. Elliot Giles won the race, but then James West also a local athlete to dip under the four minute barrier. That must have been, I mean that that whole night must have just been an incredible experience for you. It was. It was um, a huge amount of work. I probably didn't realise how much work was involved. Um, <laughs> the moment you the moment you announce you're going to do something like that, certainly I I I felt the pressure because. I'd arranged a couple of races at Watford, three thousand meters. Again, I think you were part of, part of those. I think I've done. Um, all, I've done the last three in a row at least. Yeah, the, the three thousand. <laughs> Always been top three as well. So yeah. <laughs> I'll give myself my Impressive. pat on the back for that one as well. Impressive. Again, I loved doing those, but they were put across put put on one race, and it was planned across like five weeks, and we got eleven people under eight minutes that one night. In, in yeah, July 2018, I think that was. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, and again, it, you know, I feel myself getting emotional now because there were so many stories of people driving from Cardiff to Watford and then return that night, an eight-hour round trip just to do that race, just or guys coming down from race, Manchester yeah. or, or Scotland again and getting nothing, absolutely nothing, other than 
I think um, the pacemaker got something and maybe the winner did or something like that. And it was just incredible um, what lies behind some of these people that are performing at pretty much international level. Um, They're they're not getting anything out of the sport rather than the challenge of of going for it and seeing what they can achieve for themselves. And I've always felt passionately that that, that's, that's wrong. They deserve more credit than that. You know, when mm. when people are going on Love Island and getting all the publicity and all the money that goes with it for, you know, doing nothing so creditable, it is so, so frustrating. So when we got the chance to put on the Twilight meeting, it was a colleague that suggested it. And he said, would you do it? Would we do it? And I said, well, okay, let's, let's do it. But you do everything else and I'll do the getting the fields together. Um, but again, we underestimated it. We planned it with about a dozen people um, meeting four or five times, and we got a lot of volunteers. There must have been 60, 70 volunteers on the night. So kit, you know, kids were involved as kit handlers, and we had a call room. And we tried to do it all a bit different than you would normally do for a meeting. Yeah, but no, I, I did really... notice that as, as somebody competing in it. It was really cool. <laughs> the kids, like, like, because we all knew the call room procedure, I think it went quite smoothly. But these kids were just like, can I can I have your stuff now, please? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it must have been really cool for them as well. Because, I mean, they would have been dealing with, especially in the later races, like people who were looking to go to world championships, like really, truly world-class athletes. The likes of, like, we already mentioned Guy Leamont, Spencer Thomas, Elliot Giles, Westy, like... Um, yeah. yeah, Phil Norman as well in the steeplechase. Like, yeah, it must have. Whether that matters to them or not, whether they knew who they were dealing with, I mean, if they stay well, in the sport long enough to appreciate knew, it, no, be, yeah, yeah, nobody knew of Phil Norman before that night. I don't think, <laughs> but he's he got a lot of publicity on the back of it. Yeah, he certainly was, uh, made a name for deservedly so. Yeah, and my my biggest regret that night was it was a bit breezy early in the evening, and if that steeplechase had been on um yeah you know, a couple of hours later he would have probably got that half second difference that would have got in the world qualifying time you know it's that's my biggest regret because the steeplechase in the 800 we 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 put it on bookended it on the on the meeting we'd already set up so the steeplechase mm. went before the meeting i think am i right in thinking the steeplechase idea. was a quite a late addition to the program um having it as, a, as an attempt they both were the british oh, championships really? were on the sunday mm-hmm. Neither and that the, was on the following Saturday, wasn't it? Following, we were on the Friday, Friday evening. Friday, that's it. Yep. Yeah, and we didn't have the eight hundred or the steeplechase in the schedule in the program, and I can't even remember how it came about. Somebody, somebody kindly put on social media when I think Guy or Phil or somebody was looking for a race. Why don't you ask Mark Hookway? They've got a meeting on on the Friday, and we were about the only meeting in Europe. <laughs> that was on where there was that, an opportunity to get that, a last ditch qualifying yeah time. the deadline was only days after that i think wasn't it to yes, get a qualifying yeah. time yes it was and i thought oh my god the 800 not perhaps not too bad you can get hold of 800 runners. but how do you get hold of a steeplechase field without uh you know embarrassing yourself and i mean people running sort of 10 11 minutes as well as an 8 30 <laughs> yeah no well <laughs> um, you uh you got I, well, I suppose <laughs> relatively lucky in that you had one of Britain's top steeplechasers in your own club in Ryan Driscoll, who paced the race, I'd say really yeah. brilliantly. Um, the fact that he sacrificed his own race to step in and pace those guys, I thought was really well, I'm glad you recognised that. Yeah, I mean, he did. And he went through in 4.12 or whatever first Spot half. on pace. But that, but that was the other thing, Kieran. You know, I get stories come out, like Chris McAllister, who ran 
brilliant 400 hurdles. He went to the World Championships, didn't he, for Great Britain. Mm-hmm. He um, he went to the European Cup and ran really well there. He volunteered to come down from Loughborough, just drive down on the day to pay, help pace the 800, you know, because we needed a pacemaker who could very specifically go through 500 at this pace and hopefully carry on to 550 or 600. And Chris came forward to do it. And, and so did Jack Green. So between them, yeah, we had Jack going <laughs> and you think, and they were doing it for free just because they wanted Guy and Spencer uh, and Mark English in the end as well to have a chance at that qualifying time. Again, they just missed it by what a tenth of a second, and it was so so frustrating. But again, the the human stories behind it—it it is just—it's incredible. Yeah, it's just a side incredible. of athletics that so few people are able to see, and I don't know if that's the fault of the athletes or of the media, but when we get to discuss it on something like this, it really does kind of bring to light just how special a meet like that and just this sport that we're all in is and how many stories there are behind everything. Absolutely. Yeah, there really is. And uh, I just wish they'd do documentaries on the TV or whatever it might be (laughs) because um, there's so many of them out there. Well, actually, while we're on the subject, I I have my own little story coming into that, that meeting again at the Tombridge Twilight meet. You said, you mentioned earlier British Champs was... The week before that, I was running in the 5,000 and actually fell at around the halfway mark when there was a big pile up. So my race at British Champs was essentially ruined. So I was coming into Tombridge thinking like, oh, yeah, I've got something to really prove here. I've got this opportunity that's been given to me for a 3,000 meter race against top quality field. I think Alex Tootin had just finished fourth at the British Champs in the steeplechase. I was getting to race him in the flat and I was like, okay, cool. This is a good opportunity. And yeah, really put a lot of kind of emotion and reconciliation into that race and to end up coming out coming away with the win was great I mean that was that was really special to me so that's my personal um I don't know what you'd call it like background story for for that race and I'm sure pretty much everyone in every race has something that something interesting to say that they could add some kind of interesting story that could add to the narrative of of that meet which I think is makes it really special uh, yeah, I just wish somebody with some marketing now or something would come into our sport to to pick up on it. I mean, I mean the sprints was the most difficult to, for me to put put together fields for, and I got some help from um, sprint coaches at the club suggesting people, etc. But we had the world junior two hundred meters silver medalist there and doing that, the hundred meters, and um, you know three of them ran ten point three with zero wind, which again we've never seen at Tunbridge and. Um, I really thank everybody who supported that meeting because it you would take everyone was taking a punt that it was going to be a, a good opportunity and um, we put, I think the total uh, cost that we're putting on the meeting was about nine thousand pounds because we did we did give prize money we did pay pacemakers in the distance races we did um, pay for hotel and some travel expenses for those that came further distances. Um, and we didn't give big prize money. It was £100 to the winner, I think, 75 second, 50 for third, something like that. And again, it was always my determination that we would give something back to the athletes again, give them an opportunity perhaps they don't get elsewhere. Um, we haven't got it set up for this year yet, and we've been looking for sponsors, and um, we've wanted to double the budget so we could offer even more prize money and attract even better fields. And really establish it. It's again, we're lacking that. We relied on a bunch of us, about seven or eight of us, who either got the ability or the um, business to 
um, sponsor events last year mm-hmm. and we raised most of that 9,000 just between ourselves but we didn't have a, like a headline sponsor or anything like that and um, to do it again we really want to move it up a notch so we we might not be able to do it this year but hopefully it'll be back the following year you know that's the thing yeah i um, do really hope so because it's it is a shame to hear you say that because i thought it was yeah. a really it was one of my favorite meets of the especially of the outdoor track calendar last year yeah. yeah it'd be great if you get it established along with the likes yes. of like the highgate meet and uh, yeah. i ran in the saw mile last year as well and i thought that was a really enjoyable meet um just a festival of miles going from i think the first race was one in outside seven minutes all the way up to the race that was actually won by another tombridge athlete don brown ran 401 to win that race i think i was third in 404 405 something like that but yeah i mean these these are races that are just cropping up all of the time in the uk and to get one or two of them just established and have them year yes. after year. Yeah, I mean, it's great for the athletes. It's great for the spectators. I didn't see a single person that was at Tombridge that didn't really enjoy the whole evening's athletics. Um, yeah. But that's what I, what I was going to ask you next is, yeah, plans for the future on these types of things. So you think you want to try and do the Tombridge Twilight meet as kind of frequently as you can um, with getting sponsors and things like that. Is there anything I, else that you've got kind of in the pipeline or anything? I think that's the that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um from a club development point point of view, that's uh, another thing bubbling away. You know where we go with with an athletic club, and I, I expect a lot of clubs think that. You know, um, we've seen some brilliant um, developments. There's um, Kilbarkin in Scotland. They've got an indoor centre that they've they've funded and built. Yeah, with the, with the, the help of Scottish authorities to do it. And there's uh, Lee Vale in Ireland. Have, um, I think they bought an old car dealership and they've got high jump. In long jump, uh, triple jump, weights room, and all this. And they've created that themselves for their members and, other, and schools to use. And, then, you know, those sorts of developments for a club to become really part of the local community and, you know, again, promote athletics in a different way would be a great way to go. But all these things just take up so much time. We're all volunteers. And yeah, exactly. I get, it's all I get time asked and to, money and... Yeah, I get asked to get involved in all sorts of things, British Milers Club and things like that. But my passion has always been Tunbridge Athletic Club, and it's it's like a full-time job, you know, what mm. I do. And I have to really be careful about getting involved in anything else. And the, the Twilight meet last summer was just full, full on. You know, and mm. I'd go to bed thinking, crikey, somebody's dropped out of the Women's 3000. Who can I ask to do that? I'd go through the ranking list, try and contact them <laughs> on social media. Yes, they could perhaps do it. Then I have to try and convince them to, you know, come along because it's never been on before, and it it, it it takes up a lot, lot more time than you can ever imagine. Um, you know, I'm not, I wasn't dealing with agents like um, Diamond League promoters might be, etc. So it was contacting one individual after another and getting a lot of rebuffs, or you know, I've ended my season, or I'm injured, or whatever, to piece together the fields. And yeah, at the same time, you're expecting a, a reasonable sized crowd and a decent event and it, it i just found it quite stressful to be yeah. honest <laughs> well it is yeah no it's it's so much work and yeah like you say that that next level up of dealing with agents and olympians and things like that. and i think you'll probably agree <laughs> the more high profile an athlete gets the harder it is to get hold of them the more kind of tentative they are about committing to any type of schedule unless you are a real big name event like a diamond league um yeah but you talk about your passion being Tombridge, so I want to kind of 
get back to talking about Tom Bridge, and I want to talk about the kind of athlete development of taking somebody from a talented junior into being a successful senior athlete, because that is something that I've noticed from the outside looking in, you've been really successful at. And I just want to kind of pick your brain on what methods you use, or basically just, yeah, how do you do it? <laughs> you don't have to give away all of your secrets, but keeping athletes in the sport is so is so difficult especially with distance running maturing athletes drop out all the time and yeah yes. just what are what are some of your thoughts on how you develop these athletes from good juniors into successful seniors yeah it's well it's the it's the big question i guess isn't it it's um to start with i, I suppose i don't i don't consider it coaching as much as creating an environment which they it's motivating that they want to be part of. I think the club, a lot of people, you know, I've had people say to me, Mark, you don't understand. It's an individual sport, but we, mm -hmm. I, I said it on a, a video that was produced that, that followed us for last, last winter that I, I honestly believe one of the great sort of human requirements generally is to feel part of something. And if you feel part of something, you're more likely to continue to, and you enjoy it. You're more likely to continue it'd be soul destroying to do something on your own um, the whole time and not get any pat on the back or picked up when you're down or anything like that. So I think that that's a key part of it. Having said that, you know, every age group has its problems, doesn't it? You, mm -hmm. and, and in fact, my own experiences, you, you said, how do you turn a talented youngster into a, a, talent, you know, a talented senior? In fact, sometimes it's the most talented ones have the most difficulty because they've only got one place to go they're going to be knocked off that perch at some stage so you've exactly. got a 12 year old or a 13 year old blitzing everybody and everyone you know i hate the word aren't they amazing yeah that, I, I really really don't you like that being used but it is used a lot and so they're showered with showered this, with praise and then suddenly yeah, it's, it's yeah. so hard for them to then have to learn how to lose because yeah once you get up to the senior age groups it's it's inevitable no one i think in the history of the world has dominated through under 13 under 15 under 17 under 20 and then come straight in at the seniors and started winning everything there like it's no. just no. I mean, no. i'm not going to say it's not possible but it's very very unlikely that every everyone that's dominating the under 13s age group is going to be able to make that linear progression up to being you know the senior yes. national cross-country champion for example yeah I, 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 you just reminded me of an example. We were down at Brighton at the South, Southern Cross Country years ago, mm -hmm. and Jess Judd was, yeah, I think she probably was winning everything as an under 13 and under 15. And she must have been in the under 15s or under 17s, and she lost the Southern Cross Country to one of the um, uh, girls from Invicta. Uh, it was, I think it was Alex Clay that day. I'm not sure. It might have been Bobby Clay. Lost to one of them. And... I've known Jess all the way through, and that day she was sitting on the grass there, and she was pretty much in tears. I said, "What's up, Jess?" She said, oh, "I've let everybody down. You know, what are people thinking? I've lost. I think she was second to be honest. Yeah, yeah, she probably and, was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just finished second in the yeah. in the regional yeah. in the Southern Championships cross country. You're the second best runner in the South of yeah. England. Like, you haven't let anyone yeah. down. You're 15 years old. Yeah, but I think." Sub, either consciously or subconsciously, a lot will feel like that if they're really mm. talented. I mean, we've been through it with Sean Malloy, who um, was the UK record holder for uh, 800 metres at age 16, when he won 148.2. I remember that, yeah. Um, 
and he's still doing it today and he's 24 yeah so it's quite a number of years and hand you know hands up to him he's still hanging in there giving it a go and still running pretty much that sort of pace but he hasn't moved on with the likes of Carl Langford and he's had to juggle studies with work and everything else so it's everyone's different but I think the the, the most the very one the ones at the very top where they're young have it really difficulty the the others at the back of the pack I really admire because you think why are you doing it you know it's um I think back I think back in my day you did it because there was no other outlet for your getting together you had to be part of a club you had to go physically move from your house to somewhere else to join up with other people to do something to hang now out you with can people sit, and make friends yeah yeah you can sit on your armchair and just go on facebook or instagram <laughs> or you know whatever else they use to to be sociable so you think well, why is this kid turning up week in week out in the under 13s under 15s to finish 50th out of 60 you know Kent Cross Country League and I think that's that's brilliant you know yeah no it's great it shows that they have a real proper passion for the sport and do you know what's great as well is when you see someone like that that comes through and does make it to the top level and it's happening I think more and more nowadays than perhaps historically and um, am I right in thinking that a couple of the top guys at Tombridge now were those types of guys like they were finishing maybe not so much in a Kent League but they were finishing you know 50s 60s at nationals and now they're they're coming they're winning nationals I think Chris Solly, this is, don't quote me on this, I think he, he started pretty much late under 15 or under 17. And I think he was 80-something in the Southern, I think, mm-hmm. cross-country. Um, and he's worked around, and you said, I think he was ranked fifth or sixth in Great Britain last year, around 1340 for 5,000 yeah. metres. Am I right yeah. in he was top five in the national cross-country a couple of years ago as well? He's been, four, he's been fourth and fifth. Fourth and fifth, there we go. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah, from finishing eighty um, something in an age group race in the southern to yeah. fifth in the entire country. I mean, that's fourth in the entire country. Even that's incredible. Uh, it's yeah, it is. He's just consistent. He's very straightforward, Chris. Very sensible, straightforward, hard work, hard work, sensible, well balanced, hard work. But year in, year out, doesn't miss a beat. You know, month in, month out. And um, he is, you know. I use him as an example and James West of how they trade and how they operate and how they've developed to get, try and communicate that to others as well. And, yeah. and once you've got a few like that, you can use those examples, can't you, to, to show it can be done at our club. So that, that's, that helps. Um, but of course you, you've got the under 13s, under 15s, the, the, ta- the talent, and then you've got the under 17s when they've got start to do a few exams, they start to have boyfriends or girlfriends, they have a slightly <laughs> different sort of social life yeah and those that were really good are just finding those things and perhaps coming off the um top level and you have to really try and encourage them and uh, some of them just need a nudge and the constant little chat occasionally and just say you know you recognizing the fact that they're struggling um, yeah mentally to keep it going you just it's like i often think it's like spinning plates on a pole you know where Somebody falls off, and you've got all these going quite well, and then oh, well, I've got to go back and give that one another spin. You've got to go that I mean? one, but you've got to balance the other ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, it is difficult. <laughs> so just to, and then, yeah. sorry to like to help some of the because I reckon there'll probably be a good few kind of young coaches and things listening to this. Is what are kind of some of the do's and don'ts of coaching young athletes? Right. Well, I think I'm quite I'm, I'm reasonably firm and fair um 
we have disciplines. I expect you have people to turn up, you know, on a, for a trip on time. Be, you know, I give them, I give them some stick if they're late and they're holding up a bus mm-hmm. full of forty or fifty people. So little things like that. Um, I expect them to behave well and they're representing the club. I expect them to wear the club kit when we go to championships and having their photograph taken as a team and things like that. So all those, all those little things, there's loads mm, of them that I can reel yeah. off. They try and keep, and people think I'm crazy sometimes, but just keep <laughs> drumming that into them. Uh, and well, it's all part yeah, of yeah, getting them. that, getting that discipline. Cause it is a very, it's a sport that you need to be disciplined for. And me and Sam were literally just talking before this about how we need to, work on his discipline of taking his easy runs a bit easier Um, yeah that's a big part yeah yeah and that's that's one of the things that you if you instill that discipline in those small little areas from a young age it helps translate into later ages when training becomes kind of a bit more focused and a bit more important but no do carry on with the with your do's and don'ts (laughs) yes so so you know if you've got probably i don't know how many would we have 130 140 distance runners going out on a club night Everyone's got to wear a high vis. Doesn't matter if you're the 11 year old or a 70 year old. Everyone mm-hmm. wears a high high vis kit. You're going out on the roads, and you you don't you know. I told off one of our 23 year olds last night because I saw him rush across the road with three people on his tail. You know, I want to keep him alive. I don't want to go to a funeral. So it, those sorts of things don't let him go. Just keep pick, pick him up on a, in a nice way. And he apologised and he knew he'd done it. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I just don't want any, I don't want to go to any of your funeral. It's it's not happened yet. And I don't want it to happen because it's, it's a hell of a lot of responsibility when you've got that many seniors and uh, youngsters out there training on the streets. And so those sorts of things. Um, what what other, uh, what was the question? It was what other? Uh, just basically what are some of the do's and don'ts of coaching junior athletes or young athletes? Yeah, I think. There's a few things I have in the back of my head. Bite, know when to bite your tongue. Mm-hmm. So you can't go laying into somebody, even if they've really <laughs> frustrated you. Yeah, you absolutely. have to hold back occasionally. Yeah. So bite your tongue. Uh, have a quiet word with them at another time. Um, if they've had a disappointing race, I don't think it really helps to sort of smuggle them straight off saying what happened, you know, what went wrong, because they're emotional. Give them, yeah, give them a them, chance. Let them simmer for a bit, yeah. Yeah, um, I I do particularly try and encourage a two-way sort of relationship. So I'm expecting them to fill me in on what training they've done in between the sessions and things like that. And we talk about it or have a text dialogue or some sort of communication about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important, whatever age, that if they've got a problem with a, an injury or a niggle or something sore that they... They really highlight it as early as possible because I think probably as coaches, our biggest value when you've got a group is to caution somebody about pushing through it. And, you know, perhaps the old school way is to say, yeah, yeah you keep going, you keep going. Yeah, rough and dirt on it. But yeah, no, once, you, <laughs> once, you're, once yeah. you've established a culture of running through injuries, there can be all sorts of other horrible stuff that can, yeah, can crop up. and. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah, you've got a squad of 100 people, but only 40 of them can actually run. (laughs) No, I like that point. That's very good. We're lucky at the the club over the years, we've always had at least one, sometimes two people that have taken um, the sports therapy um, qualifications and been trained in it. So we've had them to carry out um, uh, some sort of therapy, massage, 
uh, talk to people with niggles and give a quick assessment and decide whether they need to do something else or see a specialist or whatever. So we've had that and that's been really valuable. So I think if a club can have that on hand, so, you know, say, oh, somebody says, oh, my shins are sore. Can you see Luis uh, Thursday night? It's free. It's free. Mm. But get, just go and see him for 10 minutes. Just see him. Just give an assessment on what be, could be causing it. And yeah, that, something that, so simple, that but yeah, that would do no end of good. Absolutely. Yeah. So that that's helped a lot. Um, other than that, um, as I say, I think I'm very even-handed with everybody. Try and certainly um, allow other coaches. Uh, you've got to have a coordinated sort of plan between the coaches. So you allow them responsibility. I think we're very lucky at Tunbridge. We do disagree. Um Fundamentally, we have disagreements on things like should coaching groups be organised by age or by ability? Um, should veterans uh, be able to run with the kids and things like this? Mm-hmm. But generally, we've got a structure that works. It's generally organised by age. And then within the age groups, you then have subgroups for the session, which are by ability. That's generally how it yeah. works. But that's not how every club does it. Some club push the youngsters on more, but if you've got a good under 13, you might train with the under 17s. Sometimes it's a necessity, of course, but I think but you I think have to be is, a bit... Yeah, like you say, it's good to keep them with their mates type of thing. 100%. And we've always we've always treated it, as I said before, as a team sport, mm. uh, especially the cross-country. Um, it's a big thing. So I give recognition on a weekly basis to people that have improved the most or had an outstanding run, even if they're well down the field. So I do a weekly email to all the distance runners in the club and mm-hmm. highlight results from the weekend and things like that. We've got a website just for the distance runners. where I, you know, I have seen that, yeah, the of... TAC distance runners website. That's, that's it. That's where all of the race videos used to be before uh, before you got onto YouTube. I do remember going and trying to watch me yeah. racing like Robbie Farnham race <laughs> over a fifteen hundred or something when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so giving recognition to people who aren't necessarily at the, t- uh, the front, I think mm. that's really important. And also not bigging up those that are winning anyway all the time. You know, if I if I was always banging on about. Uh, a 14 year old lad or 14 year old girl that's that's winning and highlighting that every week i don't think that does them any favors necessarily so no, it's, it's keeping that pressure and expectation i suppose isn't it yeah keeping everything in perspective i think um, is another thing um and then particularly those that are making it and doing well you know trying to make the rest of the club realize that they exist they're not doing it as we said before <laughs> you know james west came down we had a we had a training session on Christmas Eve. We had 78 people there mm-hmm. doing continuous relays, different distances for different ages in uh, Knoll Park, Seven Oaks, which is a lovely place to be able to train. And James like just likes being part of it. So he comes there and he does the session. And he integrates with everybody as a chat, but most of them wouldn't even know he was a 335, 1500-meter <laughs> runner. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> Literally ran a sub four mile on their doorstep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they're not in awe of him or anything like that. He's just part of the club, and I think yeah. that's, that's brilliant, you know. No, that um, is great. And what you said about making it kind of more about a team kind of thing, that's kind of reminds me of what it was like being in the NCAA system for cross-country there, is it's not an individual sport at all. It's a team sport. If anything, your fifth person, your last scorer on the team is more important than your number one because 
if your number one finishes four, first, but your number five finishes last, your team's not going to do any good uh, versus a team that's packed five people yeah. in the top 40 or something like that. So I think that's, and, uh, a, that's a really cool honestly, emphasis to have. I honestly believe when all their careers are over, some of their best memories will be when they've been part of um, a national, national road relay team, team, team across the country yeah. team. Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, I could be heavily criticised for the way we go about it at Tunbridge because, you know, some people say the national cross country should be, you should qualify for it. And um, it'd be a little bit elitist, you know, it's a national championship. Mm. Well, well, I think so. I think part of the, there's, there's a time and place for cross country races that you have to qualify for. And something like, for example, Liverpool, I think sometimes gets a little bit backed up in the senior men's race, but the national is, I mean, that's what's part, what's, Part of the national being special is the fact that it's what two thousand people or so in the senior men's race all charging up Parliament Hill, for example. Yeah, and that's and you can translate that to the lower races as well. Is it's all inclusive? It's literally everyone in the nation is welcome to go and run cross country and just see who crosses the line first, second, third, and all the way back. Yes, yeah, and you know we've got guys just trying to get round, you know, and we've yeah. got guys who finished it right up the front and. Um, I think we've just entered, done the entries, and got 42 senior men have entered for it, and all, all because they're expecting to run. Yeah. And um, that that trip that we do to the national is key, you know, key to the enthusiasm and the motivation. Yeah, as, for team building and motivation and things like that. Yeah, exactly. We have a dinner in the evening at the hotel, and we have awards, and we've got, I think, 210 people going to that dinner. So just about everybody who's racing, plus supporters. So it really does create an occasion. And then we get the, the teams come up at the hotel. We have photographs of them. You've got 40 guys in the senior men. They all feel like they've contributed, even though they haven't, of course. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if the, yeah, if the, if the A team ends up winning the, the senior men's race, suddenly, yeah, you've got 40 guys that are like, yes, we're national champions. And I, it's just as good for them as it is for everybody else. I think a lot of There's clubs... There's a spring in this step. Yeah. yeah, a lot of clubs could learn something from that approach, I think. I mean... Hopefully not every club in the country, because otherwise we'll have 40,000 people on the start line of the National. <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm conscious that we've taken up a good bit of your time so far, Mark. So we're just going to skip ahead to, we've got four questions that we ask everyone that we have on the podcast just at the end here. Uh, and then we'll we'll let you go. So the first of our final four questions is, what is your proudest athletic achievement? And this can be in running, your own running career. This can be in your coaching career. Or it can be something completely outside of running, just something you've done that's a bit athletic that you're quite proud of. Um, I would I would certainly say the first time we won the national cross country championship as a team. Um, yeah, fact, <laughs> I thought that was a predictable one, but I wanted to hear it from the horses now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I trudged off the uh, away from the finish, and people saying, "How did you get on?" I said, "Oh." Yeah, we haven't even got in the medals. And it just goes to show what cross-country... You you were just saying about the, the last scorer. Mm. And I think we won by four points that day Ooh. with qu- quite a big score of like 240 points. And um, we, wa- we won it. And we, did, we didn't really... Hadn't expected to on the, even after they'd all finished because we had three good runners drop out. Um, but we still came in with somebody who was, I think, 130th scoring or something like that. Right. Even had... <laughs> yeah, having had the first five in the first 40-odd. So... Yeah. You never know, and um, that was quite emotional because um, 
you know, Tunbridge had never won anything like that. You know, it's uh, yeah, exactly. And for that yeah. to win that senior men's title with, I think most of those athletes you would probably coach since they were under thirteen, under fourteen, under fifteen, under seventeen. That like age group kind of runners that had progressed through the years. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they had they come through. Yeah. And that Absolutely. speaks for itself, really. I don't, we barely really need to even touch more on that. Um, so, and our next of the final four questions is your favourite shoe to run in, personally? Well, I can't run now. I've, <laughs> I, I've had too many knee operations on the right knee, but I do... Um, well, we, I just can, we can a, adjust the I'll... question to it can be your slippers as you're <laughs> shouting at people running around the track. <laughs> oh, well, oh, I can answer that because I've got some good boots I always wear at cross-country. I can't understand where... Some of the cross country you go to, people are wandering around in trainers, and it's thick mud <laughs> and or snow and ice. Like, how can you survive in that? Uh, I know. So well, I always I have, have a good, good pair of boots. That. Yeah, no, that is good. That that's much more sensible <laughs> than the story that I have. When I was a kid doing schools cross countries, there was a girl that went to our club. Her mum came and watched the race, and she'd never been to a cross country race before. Mm. Shows up in heels, <laughs> oh, so she's trying to run across oh, the course with this thick mud. <laughs> Runs across to go from one supporting point to the next, and just loses them both in the mud. I don't know if she ever even gotten back. <laughs> so yeah. the third yeah, of our. Oh, sorry, go on. Different environment oh, for people yeah, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, she had no yeah. idea what she had signed up for. I don't know if she ever went and watched another one. <laughs> Uh, but the third of our final four questions is if you could build your dream dmr team it doesn't necessarily have to be all of runners Uh, i assume you're familiar with the dmr so it's a 1600 meter leg a 800 uh, what is it no 1200 400 800 1600 meters around the track uh yeah i think we've had all sorts of people what's the some of the obscurest ones we've had we've I'm had like think, trump has been on somebody's I think, lebron yeah. james yeah we've had lebron james we've had muhammad ali we've had boris in there as well i think <laughs> yeah. as, as well as some legendary runners like johan blake and some people all the way up to like hitcham <laughs> el garouge on the mile leg. exactly yeah. yeah so go go nuts with this one do do what you want just what do you think would be an entertaining set of shapes running well do, the track? do you do you know i i, I don't I, I don't know why I've, I've got a warped sense of humour sometimes, but I'd probably go Co at 1,200, Wade Van Niekirk 400, David Rudisha at 800, and Mick Woods on the 1,600. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> Put that against like one of the leading NCAA teams or something, so he'd, he'd have a bit of a chance, but he'd have to really work for it. I, I, sh- I should add, there's nothing more meant by that than Mick and I have known each other for years and we've thoroughly enjoyed the Tunbridge Aldershot sort of rivalry right through the age group. So, you know, he's, he's been an inspiration to us, you know, the way Absolutely, yeah. you know, well, he, as a again, coach, he's, he's there legendary. week in, week out. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's just the, <laughs> I think it would be quite amusing. Hopefully they give him a decent lead. You know? I, I would imagine that squad would give him well, a very good lead. I, the, the way that I see that metaphorically is what you've done is you've kind of got the wind very much blowing in someone's sails. You've got them up to full pace and then you, you've just tried to see how long they can carry it on for on their own feet. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost, a, yeah, it's almost yeah. the Titanic and you've just chucked an iceberg in the middle of the road there. Yes. But yeah. just to, to clear it up for people who are listening to this and are unfamiliar with Mick Woods and his work, he is the coach at Old shot farnham and district athletics club he's produced un- i can't even count how many international athletes olympians elite runners and just good club level runners won the national championships throughout all of the age groups in cross country and 
road relays and just about he's done a lot basically uh but mick is now over 70 years old i'm sure he won't mind me saying is he, is he? Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. Right. yeah um so running a 1600 meter leg might be tough i did see him run a lap of paula's trail in Fontremo last year which is about a mile round so he'd make it yeah, round okay. but whether he's he'd better be... than me yeah <laughs> <laughs> who, knows, who knows what kind of time he'd run uh, so yeah. on to the last of our questions. This one doesn't really have anything to do with running other than your opponent in this. But it's, do you think you could be Elliot Kipchoge in a boxing match or just a fist fight? Well, a few weeks ago, I would have said yes, but I, fe- I <laughs> fell off my bike and dislocate, <laughs> dis- dislocated my shoulder about 12 weeks ago now. On and, your punching uh, arm or yeah. Are you good? <laughs> yeah, my right, my right, I'm right-handed. Oh, no. it's, yeah, it's the one that would <laughs> knock him out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to consider his movement as well. You might not be able to get a hand on him. That's yeah. If you're if you're one if you're one-handed, that'd be an that'd be an interesting thing, wouldn't it? You take a, you know, a, a small guy like Kipchoge trying to duck and dive, and then you've got somebody who's you know stronger but only got one arm. That's, well, that would, yeah, that's that would be a good dynamic, one. To, yeah. That would be a good one to ask some of to twist this question. If we get somebody who's a really quite elite runner, but not quite, but obviously not an Olympic champion, is could you beat Kipchoge if you tied his arms together or something? <laughs> tied his arms to his waist. <laughs> the, maybe, yeah. Well, maybe well, what you, what we've actually done here is we've found a new direction, you because know, something that we could have <laughs> talked about. We're talking about the ways to make athletics entertaining and to make way people stick with it and you know get those human stories in it why not come up yeah. with some sort of comedy series where you could actually just really hinder certain okay. runners to i was gonna say that runners. exists it's called nixon and youtube channel <laughs> yeah literally yeah you know you could do something like yeah. that so i mean i will say that kipchoge you just think of kenyan runners going out and running all these miles but um it's seen quite a lot of on social media of uh, video clips of in the gym Mm, yeah no he is he's in the gym for i think it's something like what did we what did it say on his thing it was like two hours or yeah, something after he, uh after a recovery run he does yeah he a does week. a lot a lot of time in the gym and it's usually just like you know like you sort of step aerobics and things so if you don't feel like you could keep up in a in a boxing match or something like that maybe you could try and match him on like a step aerobics class or something you know <laughs> some other kind of or a spin a spin class or something like that <laughs> exactly but no that yeah i mean that is a good point that you make there is strength and conditioning is so important to to runners and i think that is something that does get a little bit neglected in the coaching system in this country especially i did have it noted to talk to you about but i am conscious that we've kept you for a really long time so maybe we'll do a part two on (laughs) kind of the importance of of the one percent parts of wednesday nights we do circuit training we have a circuit training perfect yeah yeah so i can't think of many clubs that would do that well a colleague richard owen generally takes it I, i substitute for him occasionally i always go along and hold the watch uh, and do the timing but he he runs it and he's ex-military and he loves it he pushes them <laughs> quite hard I bet so, um, his um his circuit sessions are, are quite renowned but they keep coming back so uh, i think it is important yeah yeah definitely um, well they probably they probably felt the bit be- went away felt the benefit and realized how good it was for them for their yeah. running and for injury prevention and things like holding form as well if you don't have a strong core you're never going to be able to hold your body in the right shape to run your most efficient race yeah yeah absolutely anyway like i say we've taken up tons of your time already mark so thanks very much for coming on it's been really insightful it's been great to hear yeah kind of what you've enjoyed it thank you very much no no worries at all and hopefully yeah well like i said we'll potentially have you on for a a discussion part two taking a really deep dive into training philosophy and things like that but until next time cheers mark thank you mark thank you very much thanks kieran thanks sam 
So again, extended thanks to Mark for that insight. I thought it was fabulous to hear about somebody who has clearly got so much enjoyment and passion out of that sport and giving his knowledge to others. You can hear it in his voice just in that you know hour long. Yeah, definitely. It really just echoes off of him how much passion he has for the sport and how much time, effort, money, energy, just how much he's put into the sport. And he's really getting results out of it as well, which is great to see. Exactly. And, you know, the last thing we'll do before we let you go, because I'm aware this has been a longer podcast and the way that I actually knew about Mark in a little bit of detail before Kieran and I really sort of lined up this interview was if you go onto YouTube and type in his name, he's very, very good at getting footage and getting interviews and things like that oh he's wrong any race any decent race on the calendar in the uk marks there with his camera yeah so it's really good because obviously athletics at the sort of level that he looks after can quite easily slip underneath the radar and it's important for people to have imagery and things like that to remember their races and to do things so he's yeah, also he, i mean he's probably one of the biggest promoters of the sub elite category in in the uk possibly yeah so yeah, he's he's giving he's giving back to the um to the to sport to athletics in that division as well so I think you know go and pay some tribute to him look him up on YouTube and, and find him on um, I don't know if he's on yeah I was, was going to say I'll add he's, yeah, he's got a very good Twitter as well fantastic a lot of, yeah, a so. lot of race results um, photos of race results and things like that and updates from races yeah, all of, all of that sort of thing. He's, yeah, he's good guy. Good guy to follow. Great. So again, thanks to Mark. Thanks to you lot for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. All right. Cheers, guys. Bye.